Okay, and the story begins. How are you guys doing? Okay. John, you hear us okay? Uh, loud and clear. Okay. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> so we're up to chapter 25, uh, page 284. This is a very special chapter because we're actually concluding um, an informal section of the Tanya. The Tanya kind of has sections informally. They're not labeled in the actual book as sections, but there's topics. The first 17 chapters we spoke about how the mind rules the heart and the more I think about so what, what I feel is a product of how I think and I have the ability to control my feelings to suppress negative feelings with my mind as long as I'm being intentional I could um, control how emotional I am so if I'm not feeling passionate about God all I need to do is think about him a little bit more, appreciate him a little bit more, and I'll be able to feel him a little bit more because I appreciate him a little bit more. And that releases this spiritual tension that I have where I'm doing Jewish behavior, but I don't feel passionate about it, but at least I can appreciate it. Kind of like the, the, the rubber band analogy. Lynn's not here, but the rubber band analogy. We release tension on the, on the rubber band. Then we got to chapter 18. And we totally switched gears. This was back in the summer, right? So this is a big milestone. We totally switched gears. Chapter 18 gave us a whole new method to develop a passion for what we do in context to our relationship with God. The method that chapter 18 gave us, and it, we were elaborating it within the subsequent chapters until chapter 25, was not thinking about the greatness of God and appreciating Him and now I want to serve Him, but realizing that this is actually who I am deep down inside. The dormant love, the hidden love. The hidden love comes from the soul. The hidden love is the faith that's kind of ingrained with us just by being Jewish, just from the mere fact that we're Jews. We gave the analogy of the flame. The flame is always flickering to go upward, so is the soul. And we said that every Jew would sacrifice their life for their Judaism. And as soon as an anti-Semite comes out, we're all of a sudden passionate about Judaism. And that, that was chapter 19. And then for the next five chapters, 20 to 25, we were trying to explore how we can be passionate about God without an anti-Semite challenging us, without being persecuted. How do I become passionate? Um, how do I live for God, not just die for Him? And we said basically it boils down to realizing that every single mitzvah or every single sin is an expression of faith. If I do what God wants, I'm accepting that He is, I mean, I'm accepting His existence, I'm accepting His reality. If I neglect what he wants, or defy what he wants, then I'm rejecting him. And were an anti-Semite to come out and try to get me to reject my God, I would never do it. 
So when the temptation to sin comes, I also shouldn't want to do it. When the temptation to neglect a mitzvah comes, I also shouldn't want to do that. Because if I wouldn't neglect the reality of God under gunpoint with an anti-Semite, why would I do it at any time? The only difference is this delusional spirit, right? We get confused and we say, oh, it's different. It's a, it's a different situation. But the difference is all in the head. There's no actual real difference. Right? Make sense? You're with me? Okay. In other words, to be passionate about God from this model that we're talking about, from chapter 18 and onward, all we need to do is remove whatever's obstructing our passion, which is this delusional spirit, this confusion. We're just confused. Why do we sin? Because we're confused. Otherwise, nobody would want to sin, right? The Talmud says nobody would sin unless a spirit, a delusional spirit, would come and confuse us. Other than that, there's no... You know, we have this dormant love. Our natural default is we want to do the right thing. And here's what he says. To, to, to illustrate the difference between this dormant love and the love we've been talking about before the summer, up until chapter 17, which is basically last year's Tanya classes. Right? We kind of switched gears. So here's what he says. Page 284, the third paragraph. Um, yeah, third paragraph. Worship is very much within reach. Why? Since at all times, at any moment, you have the power and the ability to rid yourself of the delusional spirit and unconsciousness inside of you. This is something we can do all the time. Now, if our method of developing passion was limited to our understanding of what we're passionate about, right? If I'm only passionate about God because I appreciate Him, this wouldn't be able to happen at all times at any moments. Now again, everything in the Tanya that he says is very meticulous, very exact. The Alter, the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya says that he would spend time, sometimes up to two weeks. Should I put this letter Vav in? Should I not? Everything was done very carefully. Everything in the Tanya means something. He says, at all times, at any moment, we can develop this passion anytime. In contrast to a love that's dependent on our own appreciation, that can't happen at all times. We have to be in the right state of mind. We have to be in a good mood. We have to be um, in the right intellectual environment. But with this love, just realizing that this is what I truly want because I'm a Jew. And the only thing that's stopping me is I just, I'm confused. I have this delusional spirit. That, that can happen anytime, place. It's not dependent on any situation. Um, j just to illustrate this idea, we actually hinted to this earlier in chapter 18. Let's turn back to chapter 18, page uh, 218. Page 218. So back in, on page 218, chapter 18, where we first introduced this dormant love, the Altareb made it very clear that this love is not, has nothing to do with how we understand God. Right? When an anti-Semite comes 
and starts tor uh, tormenting us, and all of a sudden we're passionate about our Judaism, it's not because we thought about how important it is and how valuable it is. It's more instinctual, right? Which means it's not an intellectual love, it's a dormant love. It's a love that's already there, that's brought. It has nothing to do with how smart a person is. You could have the greatest Jewish philosopher, and when God forbid, or if God forbid, an anti-Semite were to hold a gun to his head and say, denounce your Judaism, what's going to motivate him to be passionate about Judaism is not his understanding of Judaism. It's not his philosophy, but there's a feeling that's ingrained within us, within our souls. And here's what he says to, to, to illustrate this verse. Right? In, a, in a sense, we're all like fools when it comes to God. Right? A fool just has faith. When it comes to God, we're all fools because it has nothing to do with our understanding. We can't understand God. The third paragraph on 218, as the verse states, this is from Psalms, from Tehillim, I was a fool without knowledge. I was an animal toward you. In other words, we had this simple instinctual love and joy, almost like what an animal has. Yet I was always with you. So here is how he explains the verse. In other words, it is precisely because I was a fool and an animal, using my faculty of faith and not reason, because I was being faithful rather than reasonable, that's why I'm always with you. Why am I always passionate? Why is my passion to God consistent? Or how can it be consistent? When I can stop thinking and just feel. That doesn't mean I'm unintelligent. That means I'm super intelligent. I'm not defined by my intelligence. But there's a deeper part of me. My appreciation of Judaism, my appreciation of who I am as a Jew, my appreciation of my relationship with God is not dependent on how much I value it. It's inherently valuable. By the way, this is a great model for any relationship. A relationship should be inherently valuable, not subjective to my mind, to my, my understanding. And the advantage to that, the consistency, right? If we flip back to 284, like he says, since at all times, at any moment, if we adopt this mode, we can develop passion. We can do it. Any thoughts? Sounds good. Controversy? Anyone? No? So you gotta get to that feeling part, so that you can that you that it's that you can achieve it. If you over intellectualize things, then then you lose it. Exactly, exactly. I'm not. In other words, my Judaism is not defined by how much I understand. Yeah. Because then some people would be more Jewish than others, it, it, and it's more black and white so than you that. You gotta feel it and not intellectualize everything you do. Exactly. Now it's not just an emotion. That feeling is there because it's there. Because it's there. Because there's a deep connection. Mm. Because there's this dormant love. There's this. The, the dormant love we said is an expression of the soul, the chachma. The chachma, chachma is translated as wisdom. So in a sense, it is related to the faculties of intellect. But chachma means I'm open to something bigger. Chachma, wisdom, I'm, I'm what's the word we use? Uh, inquiry. I'm open to the possibility that there's something I don't understand, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with identifying with that. Hmm. It's, it's, it's humility. It's bittal. Chachma is the ultimate bittal. So the more you learn, can it interfere with your relationship with God if you if you intellectualize mm, 
if you if you make sense of something that you don't really understand? Well, it, it's a very good question. So, on the other hand, you have a mitzvah to understand. You have a mitzvah to learn. But the idea is, the more you learn, the more room there is for you to realize there's so much more that I don't know. There's more room for bitzel. There's more room for humility. All the, in other words, all you did is raise the bar of your faith. The more you know, the more <clears throat> faith you're going to have to have. Because the more you're going to have to realize that you don't know. <clears throat> and that's Great why question. you can go mad if you study the Torah, if you're young. Not the Torah, <laughs> if you study the, the, this time. Well, well, well that, that's why the starting point has to be faith. When the Jews received the Torah on Mount Sinai, they said, we're going to do it, and we're going to ask questions. And asking questions, understanding is an important part, but it shouldn't be dependent on that. There's a certain acceptance, just because it's true, because we have this faith, and our understanding will complement that in many ways. One of the ways it will complement that is allowing room for faith, intelligent faith, rather than just default faith. You know, a person could have faith just because they don't understand. And a person or who, they're scared. Or, or, yeah, out of fear. Or, or, but a person can get it, can understand it, relates to it intellectually, emotionally, and can still let go and say, that's not why I'm doing it. <laughs> I'm doing it because it's real, not because I understand. Hmm. Hmm. My understanding complements it. God wants us to engage our heart and mind, not just to be robots. But if we can let go temporarily of our minds, and sometimes it's okay not to overthink things. Sometimes it's okay to just to let go and just, this is the way it is. And here's what he says. How do we get rid of this delusional spirit, this confusion, which says, look, you could sin, it's not that bad. You can do this, you can do that, it's not that bad. You could neglect this mitzvah and it's not that bad. Idolatry, no, right? That can, that, the fact that there's a difference, at the end of the day, God doesn't want it. That's what we said in chapter 24. The difference between idolatry and any other sin is subjective. Objectively, God doesn't want it. So they're all, the, they're all, <laughs> right, they're all the same. The fact that we make subjective differences, it's this delusional spirit. How do we get rid of this delusional spirit? So let's go back to our um, page 284 again, the third paragraph. In the middle of the paragraph. By recalling, so we get rid of this delusional spirit by recalling and awakening your love for the one God, which without doubt is definitely dormant in your heart. As soon as we try to actively remember that love that we do have within us, the confusion goes away. As soon as we turn on the light, the darkness dissipates. The Altarebbe wrote earlier in chapter 12 of Tanya that a little bit of darkness, you don't fight darkness. <laughs> you don't battle darkness. You just turn on the light and the darkness leaves. A little bit of light dispels a lot of dark. Hmm. So if I'm feeling dark, feeling dark in my relationship with God, I'm feeling unmotivated, and I'm feeling that these mitzvahs aren't important to me. No, I do value them. They are important. And I have to remember how important they are to me. Because were an anti-Semite to come out and challenge my Judaism, I'd all of a sudden be passionate. Where did that come from? Must be that I'm actually passionate. There's this cloud of darkness, 
And the way I get rid of it is remembering what I really value deep down inside, turning on that light. And as he says, actually, in chapter 14, he says, actively tell yourself, he says, have a conversation with yourself and tell yourself, hey, I don't want to be a fool. I don't want to be delusional. I want the truth. Remind yourself. As soon as we talk to ourselves in that way, we actually externalize the negativity and realize that the, the negativity is what's obstructing the positivity. It's not that we're negative. It's not that we're unmotivated. There's something obstructing us. Let's take a look on page 285. He defines this dormant love again. He redefines it in context. Um, this will be again the third paragraph on 285. Namely, that you love God so much that you don't want to be separated in Him. Sorry, you don't want to be separated in any way from His non-dual oneness. The essence of God is His oneness. Right? We said God is uh, omnipresent because God is one. One with the world, one with existence. Everything is an expression of Him. Um, just like the sun or, or the example we gave if you had the opportunity you know a hundred dollars might be valuable but if you compare those hundred dollars to a minting machine that can print those hundred dollars that hundred dollars the, the, the machine is infinitely more valuable right and this and the, the example is word speech you say something but compared to your ability to speak, not, not what you said, but your ability to say those words, those words are, are they, be, they become much part, part of a bigger picture, right? The world is created by speech because it's part of something much bigger compared to God's ability to create unlimited, to speak whatever he wants. The world has a almost a negligible existence, but it's not negligible because it's part of something much bigger. The world has a godly existence. And we can connect to that were we to not reject him. Right? And when we develop this love for God, love God, loving God means I don't want to be separated from him. I can't be separated from him. Let's jump down to this, uh, this next bold paragraph, even if this means actually giving up your life. So we would all sacrifice our lives not to separate from him, right? Um, in our previous classes, we said several stories where people throughout history took the bullet for their, for their Judaism, right? To not bow down to the idol without any compelling reason grasp, uh, or graspable logic. What, mo what motivates a person to sacrifice themselves for their faith it's not their understanding of their faith it's something deeper you know that's something we don't think about much in this time and place obviously all through history Jews have had to think because they were in real danger of being martyred yeah and, for sure you know in Europe and the Middle East and wherever and for even sure. today in a lot of places but here and now we don't 
think about it that much. What would happen if, you know, if, if we had to face that? If, face. if it was like a terrorist attack and then you, then you become very religious and then you give yourself up to God so you know that there's a bigger force. Yeah, you know, yes. that kind of thing, I so mean, that you know that you won, and and you and you find the space to get inside. You know? Yeah, exactly. In other words, we don't know what it's like to be under persecution as Jews. Thank God, at least not on a personal level, and thank God we don't. But on a smaller scale, we we experience this. Right. Um, on a on a smaller scale, you know, you might experience an act of anti-Semitism. I, I know myself, whenever I've experienced that, I've never felt ashamed to be Jewish. I just ended up feeling more proud. But why do I feel so... When, when they dis desecrate, or dis you know, desecrate the graves, they do that often everywhere, then it's kind of like because you have to respect your the dead, and they, they do that. But then you've got no control over it anyway, and the people are dead anyway, and they're one with God, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, you're a more obvious target, also. Okay, that's also true. <laughs> but but there's times where where or something negative happens in the Jewish world, mm -hmm. you know, something in Israel or, or or whatever it is. God forbid, we we feel more proud about our Judaism. We feel like we need to stand up for our Judaism. We feel like, hey, I'm part. I'm representing something bigger. I'm part of something bigger. And the whole goal here is how do we get to feel that we're part of something bigger without it being tragic and dramatic, <laughs> just as just in regular day life. And that's where thinking about this comes from. If I were to remember that if God forbid I were under persecution, I would stick with my faith very strongly. And it wouldn't be intellectual, it would be instinctual. Something deeper than intellect. What would motivate me would not be my understanding of Judaism, right? It's not that I read the Torah portion this week, okay, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> no, I'm in. And I'll read the Torah portion too, but that's not, what's, that's not what's getting me. In other words, we don't need, I'll tell you as a, as a Chabad rabbi, and, and, and the Rebbe's approach was generally not getting into philosophical debate with people, trying to convince people that Judaism is... This is who you are. You feel it. I feel it. Now let's study. Let's learn about who we are. I'll tell you a story. Rab, um, Dr. Velvel Green. You heard of him? Dr. Velvel Green was a scientist. I forgot what type of scientist. He was some sort of, some sort of rocket scientist. I don't know what he was. <laughs> some sort of scientist. In physicist or something. He was some sort of scientist. Physicist. Yeah, he was some sort of... Some sort of uh, um, dude <laughs> in Minnesota. And he was a very, considered himself to be a very secular Jew, an atheist. And he somehow got connected with the Chabad rabbi of Minnesota, Rabbi Feller. He had a lot of, um, he had a big connection with him. And he had a whole journey, his life was a big journey. Eventually, he turned his life around, but it was a big back and forth in struggle. It was difficult. It was challenging. And, and there's tons of stories about him and his relationship with the Rebbe. He would write all of his philosophical questions and challenges to Judaism, to God, and all these different things to the Rebbe. And the Rebbe would, among other questions that he asked, 
about life and whatever, the Rebbe would address his questions, but when it came to his philosophical challenges, the Rebbe totally ignored it. And he thought, this rabbi is not competent enough to answer me. That was, that was his original thought. That's a good thought. It was, only, <laughs> it was only years later where he studied more. He learned more about what Judaism is. He learned more about who he is, his heritage. And he got to the point that he was actually going to send his kids to Jewish school. That's how far he got. He got to the point where he was keeping kosher and everything, and he wanted to send his kids to Jewish school. And he writes a letter to the Rebbe informing him of this new life change, this new development that's taking place. He gets a letter back, congratulations, I'm glad to hear, together with an answer to all of his philosophical questions. You mean the Rebbe Over has the years. taken so many years to actually write the answer? The, the Rebbe took many years and he finally answered all of his philosophical questions and he says to the Rebbe, I don't, so, so he's, I don't know if he wrote back to the Rebbe or if he spoke to the Rebbe in person later on, but he said, what's going on here? You clearly know that had, you saw that was struggling. You clearly have the answers. You could have resolved everything. Hmm. You could have resolved it all. Hmm. Just answer me 10 years later. Why did you have to ignore me? You could have won much earlier. And the Rebbe's response is, I'm not here to win debates. I'm not here to win arguments. Hmm. I'm here to inspire Jews. <laughs> a Jew's commitment to Judaism, a Jew's connection to Judaism, is not the fact that they understand it. It's just who we are innately. And that's why he says every Jew is ready to give up their, is ready to sacrifice themselves. And there's no reason for it. It doesn't matter how intelligent or how knowledgeable you are or, or aren't. I guess I have an issue with that, that he answered 10 years later. I don't know. My, I don't know if it was 10 or, or what the number was. It doesn't matter. But it's like the principle behind it is this gentleman wasn't ready to commit to Judaism totally. And then by sending his kids to Jewish school, he's committing. Then he became Jewish in the eyes of the rabbi. No, and then no, the rabbi on the contrary. Answered, answered him because he was, because he... No, no, it's the other way around. He didn't become Jewish. What the rabbi was saying is, you don't need answers because you're already Jewish. Yeah. In other words, you're, you're, the fact that you're Jewish is not because you see it in a certain way. It's not about perspective. Yeah. It's just who you are. Just like being human is not a matter of perspective. Then why didn't he tell him? I'm mad at him. <laughs> what? Well, he should have just told him you're not ready to hear the answers, and then he wouldn't be so pissed off. <laughs> I don't know if he, he wasn't upset. I think he wanted to know. Okay, but but our our our, our, our point here is our commitment to Judaism, and not even our commitment, our Jewish identity is not defined by our understanding, it's not defined even by our behavior, mm -hmm. by our commitments, nothing. It's just who we are. And that's why we would innately, inherently connect to this stuff without understanding, without thinking about it. It's, it's natural, it's instinctual. That's what this dormant love means. There's a, a midrash which beautifully depicts this idea. Let's take a look at our text here, text one. It's from the midrash. Rabbi Abohu, in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, excuse the spelling mistakes, our translator, our in-house translator is not, uh, <laughs> said an analogy, he gave an analogy of a king that entered a country accompanied by dukes, prefects, 
and commanders. So one person said, I'll host the dukes. It would be my honor to host all the dukes. Another said, I will host the prefects. That would be my honor. Another said, I will host the commanders. There was a wise person who said, I'm going to choose to host the king. Since all of the others can change, can fluctuate, can lose their position, because they're hired by the king, whereas the king will never change. This is what the Major says. Similarly, within the nations of the world, some serve the sun, some serve the moon, some serve sticks and stone, or in more contemporary lingo, some serve their tablets and iPhones, some serve their occupations, some serve their education. But the people of Israel only serve God. As the verse says, and here's the key here. Why do we choose God? Why does a Jew choose God? The verse, this verse says it all. Verse from Lamentations, from Eicha. God is my portion, says my soul. Notice the bold. With this I proclaim his unity with the recitation of the Shema twice daily. Why does a Jew choose, choose God? It's not an intelligent choice. It's a soul choice. We're often under the assumption that there's only two ways to make choices, either emotionally or intelligently. But there's actually another option. We could make choices soulfully. Hmm. And it's neither emotional nor intelligent. A Jew chooses God, God is my portion, says my soul. What motivates a Jew to choose God is not his intelligence. It's not just how we feel and think. It's not just that I feel this, so I want it. And it's not that I appreciate it, so I want it. It's my soul. It's just who I am. So I make that choice. And that's what we exclaim during the Shema. In other words, how do I get over this delusional spirit? The delusional spirit makes me act in ways I shouldn't, irrationally. And the trick is not by being rational. The trick is by being irrational, but in the other extreme. If what's getting me to act defiant toward God, toward my Judaism, is negative irrationality, I don't know if that's a word or not, this delusional spirit, then the way I need to get back on track is again acting irrationally, but in a holy way. Which seems irrational anyway. Yeah. But it's not really irrational. Well, it's irrational, I would say more super rational. It's irrational in the sense that it's not important because it's rational. We can make sense of it. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, you know, why keep Shabbos? There's beautiful reasons why we should keep Shabbos. There are. There's beautiful reasons why we should keep kosher. There's beautiful explanations. There's beautiful explanations. There was a, a, a study that came out how putting on tefillin is good for your heart and mind. How it relieves anxiety. And these things might all be true. And they're beautiful. They really are. But the reason why I'm choosing it is not because it makes sense. 
but says my soul, this is just what I want, this is who I am, God said it, I'll do it. And part of what God wants is us to understand it as well. And sometimes when we're feeling irrationally uninterested in Judaism, uninspired, what we need to do is act Jewish in an irrational way. We need to make that flip. Sometimes what's going to stop us from this cloud of darkness that we enter, and you know, we're not inspired, we're not... Sometimes we just need to be irrational. Do something crazy that's Jewish. Do something ambitiously crazy and weird. But it's not weird because God said to do it. Looks weird. Right? It could, it could be something small. But, it's, but it's, some, it's something out of our comfort zone. It's not something we're used to doing. Turning off the light in the fridge before Shabbos is irrational. But it's a small step to making Shabbos more, more real, more authentic. Because now I open the fridge or close the fridge and I'm not triggering a light. It's irrational. But just do it. I'm not inspired. Okay, just do it. Right? Just be irrational. This is what my soul wants. My soul doesn't want it because it's rational. My soul wants it because it's real. Hmm. Being irrational can be super unholy, but it could be super holy. And the Rebbe's approach and the Chabad approach was if we're being irrational in an unholy way, the trick isn't to talk a sense into us. Use that in a good way. Take that irrationality that we have, that foolishness that we have, and just redirect it. Don't suppress it. We all get irrational. We all do things we shouldn't and have our negative clouds. In. There's no reason why I feel this way. Instead of suppressing it, redirect it, and do something good that's irrational. Give charity, even though it doesn't make sense. It's irrational. Fine. Beautiful. Here's the story. The Talmud talks about the mitzvah. There's a special mitzvah to dance at a wedding. To bring joy to the bride and groom. An important mitzvah. One of the mo it's a very important mitzvah. And... You took... <laughs> okay, there you go. You, you, you got it. To make a bride and groom happy at their wedding is a very important mitzvah, and the Talmud accentuates the beauty of this mitzvah and has a whole page discussing how different rabbis, what they would do. And there was the rabbi, one of the elders would, his name is Rabbi Shimon, the son of Yitzchak, would go on the dance floor, he would take three myrtles and he would start juggling them. Hmm. Irrationally. Well, he, was just, he, was, he didn't care what people thought of him. Now, now take, let's take a step back, let's picture this. Imagine an old elderly scholar, old man, long white beard, long coat. You know, he has that regal rabbinic presence when he walks in the room people rise you know he has he gives off that you know you might be intimidated by him a little bit you, you see a little bit of reverence you know there's a big personality a big scholar walking in the room and all of a sudden he goes to the dance floor takes three myrtles and starts juggling like a clown the other rabbis came up to him and said rabbi this is inappropriate you're making rabbi you're you're telling you're making rabbis look like clowns <laughs> and you're embarrassing all of us stop it 
paid no attention. He continued. Other rabbis came and said, look, you're making a fool out of yourself. You're making rabbis look clowny. You're making us... Stop it, come on. He kept on going. He was getting all into his juggling. Later, I don't know, several years later, he died. And when he died, the Talmud says a big pillar of fire came and illuminated his grave. And the Talmud points out that this is something that happens very rare, very rarely, and only to special people. So they started investigating, what did he do? What did this rabbi do that was so, that he merited to have his grave illuminated by this pillar of fire? And they finally figured it out. It says it was his irrationality, it was his shtus. Shtus is the Hebrew word for foolishness. But it was a holy foolishness. It was his holy foolishness that actually brought holiness, that actually merited this pillar of fire, that actually merited this illumination. Sometimes we need illumination in our life. We need light in our life. And sometimes it's like you said, we have to just stop thinking and just be irrational. And it's, it's okay. We can be irrational. It's not a problem. I'm often irrational. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Again, on the bottom of 285, he says, if we can be irrational when it comes to persecution and choose Judaism over comfortability, we can be irrational and choose Judaism over temptation. If I have a choice, persecution, Judaism, right? I'm going to choose Judaism. So if I have a choice, Judaism or be comfortable, <laughs> I can also, you know, a little bit, I could sacrifice, if I could, if I could die for Judaism, I should be able to live for it. And Tanya's not suggesting that we go out of our way to die for Judaism. But what he is suggesting is that if you will die for Judaism, then go live for it. And if you could sacrifice life for it, you could sacrifice a little bit of comfort for it because it's really what you want deep down inside. We can break through that lust because it's who we are. And in the chapter, he gave several examples of how remembering and becoming aware, gaining consciousness of this dormant love we can prevent ourselves from doing sins. We can motivate ourselves to do mitzvahs. This is the ultimate bittal, as you were saying before. How I think, how I understand. Yeah, so it's it's ultimate bittal, but you have to uh, you have to have the global what you're working towards with. Yeah. The, the goal in mind, you're the saying? The goal in mind, okay. you have to find it, and that's, that's where you... You're saying, what's it. my mission in life? Okay, that's yeah. a good question. We, we are going to get there. Okay, because you can't, you can't just go towards a bigger thing if you don't know what that bigger thing is, and you just... You've got to get the bigger thing so you can work towards it, so you can do mitzvot to get there, so you can be comfortable to be part of this big thing. It's a good question. Okay, I think we're going to get to your question, though. Okay.
No, because ultimately, why should I be passionate? Who cares? But what he's saying here is that you are passionate. It's who you are. Now, what's the goal? There is a motivation behind creation, like we spoke about last night. If God created, it must be for a purpose, because purpose doesn't justify action. It motivates it. Some sort of purpose to creation. And when we get to chapter 35, uh, we're going to elaborate it more on it more. But we'll touch upon it tonight as well. Our mitzvahs, and we spoke about it a little bit in actually chapter 23, our mitzvahs have an impact. It's not just a cultural resemblance. God wants it. And just as a body facilitates a soul, mitzvah facilitates God in this world in a physical way. And, and this is something we all want to take part in as Jews. And, and truth is non-Jews also. Non-Jews not through mitzvahs, but through, through their obligations. Every, every person in humanity has the obligation to bring God into this world. So ultimately, everybody wants to do mitzvahs, but they're sometimes not given opportunities to do mitzvahs? Or they have to find the opportunity to be part of this big thing? So, sometimes we, we overlook the opportunities. So you have to find the opportunities to do mitzvahs. Some, sometimes, you know, some people don't even know that they have, that, that they need to do mitzvahs. Some people don't even know what a mitzvah is. We're fortunate to... <laughs> we're, we're fortunate to... You know, sometimes it's... You don't... You know, real darkness is when you don't even realize it's dark. And your eyes are just... Now, if I know I'm supposed to be doing certain things and I'm not, okay. But if I, I don't even know... It's not, I mean, not, not to blame anybody. Nobody, you know, it's not nobody's fault. But that's so, why we learn. That's why we so study. You're, maybe you're getting to this, but when I was reading this today, he, he discerns between mitzvahs that you... Not doing a mitzvah just by mistake and intentionally not doing mitzvahs. Saying, mm -hmm. eh, I can repent later. That's so, okay, yeah. Right. In other words, even though I can theoretically repent, myth, uh, repent later, I still don't want to neglect this. I still don't want to give up this opportunity. Because you're not forgiven for it. No, no, you he, he says you'll be totally forgiven. God will totally forgive you. You still don't want to neglect it. Because at that moment... Maybe in the future you'll repair the relationship with God, but at that moment the relationship is being... It's wasting opportunity. It's wasting opportunity. That re the relationship is being, um, is being severed, if you will, at least consciously. He makes it just... He... So then he gets into the details. He says, wait a minute, how can you repent later if you plan on... If you're, <laughs> if you're sinning in order to repent? So the rule is you can't repent. Repentance, you can't sin and say, I'm going to sin and I'll repent later. It's like you're doing it that because then you're doing it off. It's okay if I rob the bank now because I'll just ask Because for, I'll ask for forgiveness. Later, yeah. So he says, the truth is, you can always repent. You can always do teshuva. Even if you plan on sinning to do teshuva, it just becomes much harder. Hmm. Hmm. Got a longer way to go to In other words, if a person sinned already, so now you do teshuva. God gives opportunity to do teshuva. If a person sins with the intention of, I could sin because I'll do teshuva. So now, you can still do teshuva, but it's not going to be as easy. It's going to be more, it's going to require more effort. 
And we all say because uh, we're lazy. Life yeah, if we're lazy or, 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 I, you know. But we're not, but we're not it, planning, deviously planning. Exactly. When it's that yeah. premeditative. Right. So now that the tshuva is going to have to be that premeditative as well. <laughs> or at least more, more meditative than that. Hmm. Exactly. Ultimately, the only thing stopping us is our own selves. It's a delusional spirit. But, but, but what is stopping me from rejecting this delusional spirit and realizing, hey, in other words, ultimately, if, if we truly want it, which we do, but if we become aware of what we want, nothing can stop us. Let's take a look on page 612. Which is chapter 47 of Tanya. Ooh, we're making progress. We're <laughs> done. <laughs> chapter 47 is an important chapter. I do say so myself. No, I'm kidding. They're all important, but chapter 47 is actually the shortest chapter in Tanya. Hmm. Here's what he says, top of the page, page 612. Nothing other than our will is holding us back from connecting our souls with God's oneness and life. Since if a person doesn't want to connect with him at all, God forbid he has the free will to do so. Like I had a rabbi in yeshiva, he said, I have good news and bad news and they're both the same. You can do whatever you want. And if we really want this connection, we can make it happen. But as soon as you desire godliness, accept it, pull it on yourself, just go for it. And say, God is our God, God is one. Write the Shema. Shema Yisrael. Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. God is one. Reciting the Shema. Right? Sometimes we just need to be, sometimes, like we said, just be irrational. Just do it because you want it. Again, will. Will is not rational. And the proof is, if you want something, and I try to talk you out of it, you're still going to want it because your justification, your, under, your, your reason, sorry, your explanation as to why you want it is merely a justification. It doesn't produce the will. It actually just justifies it. If I were to get into a philosophical debate with an atheist, hmm. wasting time. I would be wasting my time and he'd be wasting his time. Yes, no. Because, and if I, were, if, if I were to get into a philosophical debate with a Christian minister and they would explain based on the Bible and on the Talmud how Jesus is the real thing and how I'm doing it wrong and intellectually he would convince me, I would still want to follow Judaism. It wouldn't stop me. Why? Because, I, because it's, my choice of Judaism is not intelligible. It's super rational. It's my soul, not my mind. My mind, I try to align my heart, mind, with the soul. And even behavior with my soul. But the soul is the starting point. It's just who I am. This priest would be wasting his time. This philosophical atheist would be wasting his time. Because there's knowledge. Because I'm a fool. <laughs> I just go for it. God said it, I'll do it. But it's, it's good to listen and then show that you're strong enough to withstand that and your soul's strong enough to, to that, you, that it's established enough to actually handle that. Oh, 100%, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be, look, it could 
add to the confusion as well. But <laughs> not, not if you fixed in your belief. No, no. And not if you fixed in your belief, then it won't. You won't. Well, you won't because you know your foundations are good, so you'll be okay. So I mean, that's the bottom line. What we're developing here in these chapters is a strong underlying foundation. The whole chapter eight, chapters eighteen to twenty-five, is there to just give us this foundation that what makes me passion my passion for Judaism is not intelligible. It's soulful. Which means it's not going to fluctuate based on how well I understand. For the good and for the bad. So it has its drawbacks, has its pros and cons. It's not going to fluctuate based on the environment I'm in. It will produce the environment rather than react to it. It's stable. And what's important to realize is it's also joyful. This soul experience should be a joyful experience, otherwise we're doing it wrong. It's not supposed to be... You know, you, you, you see the, the old rabbi walking around hunched and he has this serious face as if he's being ag aggravated. Right? If, you want to, if you want people to think you're busy, just look aggravated, right? That's not holy. It's not a holy thing. Holiness is synonymous with joyousness. And That's if, how you could do the juggling. Exactly, because this rabbi was, was able to. Exactly, he was able to be totally irrational. That's the soul. Be irrational and juggle because this is what they want. It's not about, you know, get, lose the mind for a second. No, we'll come back to the mind. We'll come back to the brain. We're not going to be totally robots. Don't worry. But just for a minute, just let go. Do something crazy to express Judaism, to express your passion for Judaism. Something wild. Something where all your friends are going to go, look at this guy becoming all religious on us. <laughs> but it doesn't matter what they say. It's just who we are. It's funny, we were willing to do that for our spouses when we were new, you know, in the, in the relationship. <laughs> let's go to the beach. That was a... Out of nowhere, right? Let's go to the beach. Yeah, we can. we got to study. We have a... Ah, forget that. Let's go to the beach. Exactly. Right. Exactly, and by the way, why not do it for God? If you're willing to do it for for a spouse, for a spouse, and that's that might be why King Solomon describes the relationship with God as a relationship between man and wife. Hmm. Because what motivates the relationship is not just your mere appreciation for one another, but some sort of eternal internal bond. Exact, beautiful analogy. That's a, that's a very good way to put it. Well said. Let's jump to page 294. The conclusion of this chapter and the conclusion of these, um, what is it, seven chapters, 18 to 25, is we have to recite the Shema. <laughs> Moses explicitly tell told the Jewish people who were entering the land of Israel that you're going to have to say the Shema twice, once in the morning, once in the evening. Because you're going to have to constantly remind yourselves God is one and this is who you are. This is part of who you are. Right? Self-sacrifice. 
And if you can sacrifice yourself for Judaism, you can live for it. And that's all the Shema. That's what the Shema all is. That's what a Shema represents. Right? Shema is the first prayer we teach our children when they, when they begin to speak. Shema is the prayer that a person <coughs> goes to the grave with. It's how we start. It's how we, it's how we start our day. It's how we finish our day. The Shema is there to inspire us. We say the Shema, that one line, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, what do we say right afterwards? The Ahavta Et, Hashem Elokecha, you should love the Lord your God. As soon as we realize our relationship with Him, we're supposed to be inspired with love. It's supposed to inspire us. Which means, it's not sufficient. But before I say this, this is what he says. The whole purpose The last line on 294, and then we'll go to two, and, and 295, because the general Torah and mitzvah observance depends on you constantly reminding yourself of your own willingness for, what's that word? Martyrdom. Martyrdom. What was that, sacrifice? Sacrifice. Okay, there we go. Sacrifice. We're willing to give our lives for, for God's oneness. Judaism is dependent on this. Judaism is dependent on our will to sacrifice ourselves for it. Why? Because it's not sufficient to just behave like a Jew. It's not just sufficient to feel like a Jew. It's not sufficient to think like a Jew. A person, it has, it's who we are. And if that's who I am in my core, no philosophy will talk me out of it. My bad moods won't talk me out of it. The inconvenience won't talk me out of it. It's who I am. And reciting the Shema reminds me of that. An interesting insight I once heard. If you look inside the, the Torah, when it quotes the, the verse Shema, the word Dalet is larger. It's written in, in every single Sefer Torah, in every single Torah scroll that you look at. The, the Dalet of Shema, of Echad, is larger than all, is written in a larger font than all the other letters. And what that represents, the Dalit, letter Dalit, if you visualize it, is shaped like a hammer. Hmm. Because the message of the Shema is something that we have to hammer within ourselves, drill within ourselves. The message that we can sacrifice ourselves for this, we can live passionately, passionately about this, uh, for this as well. Here's something interesting about the Shema. I think is very relevant to what we're saying, to, to our topic here. It says in the verse, when the Torah introduces the mitzvah of Shema, it says when you go to sleep and when you rise. And we derive from there that a person has to recite the Shema every single evening, every single morning. So to fulfill the mitzvah of Shema, here's the question. Do you have to say it twice? Is it two separate mitzvahs or is it one mitzvah? In other words, if I said Shema in the morning, I forgot to say it in the evening. This is a halachic question. If I said Shema, Shema in the morning, I didn't say it in the evening or vice versa. 
Did I fulfill at least the morning mitzvah? Or is the morning mitzvah dependent on the evening mitzvah because it's written together in the same verse? Is it one unit or two units? It says you'll, you shall say it morning and night, or night and morning. Yeah. So does that make it one unit or two units? In other words, is it one mitzvah and I only get that mitzvah? I only do the mitzvah if I did it in the morning and the evening? Otherwise, I just did half of it? Or is it two separate mitzvahs? It doesn't matter. Make it two separate ones. Good for you. Well, it matters because if you only said it once, the question then, then is, you're actually not doing the then you might not be doing the mitzvah. What are your thoughts? Some Talmudic analysis here. We'll add some Talmud to our Tanya studies. What if you say it three times? Then you overkill. Well, overkill, exactly. <laughs> then you're very happy. <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts? I think you're not completing the mitzvah because the mitzvah says morning and night or night and morning, whatever it says. Okay. It says says both in there. So what if you if you complete half a mitzvah, is it still a mitzvah? Well the question is, is it half a mitzvah or is it no. two separate so so the answer actually is and the halachic commentaries on the Talmud and and authorities, Maimonides and others discuss this. But it's actually two separate mitzvahs. Hmm. There's an independent mitzvah to say it in the morning. And if you said it in the morning and didn't say it at night, you did the mitzvah. There's an independent mitzvah to do it at night. And you're getting two different mitzvahs. It's not a half a mitzvah. And the reason why this is important to know, we have a mitzvah to say the Shema in the morning, a mitzvah to say Shema at the night. And the difference between morning and night, night represents the darkness, the confusion, a Jew might be, God forbid, under persecution, experiencing anti-Semitism. He's going to say the Shema, right? When a Jew is in trouble, he says Shema. But a Jew has to know that I don't just say Shema when I'm in trouble. I have to say Shema in the morning too. When the sun is out, it's bright outside, things are going well. I'm happy with my life. I'm happy with my job. I'm happy with my family. I still need to be passionate about my relationship with God, not just because it's dark outside, not just because there's persecution, not just because life is challenging, but because I'm a Jew. And we recite, recite the Shema in the daytime as well. Because the passion has to be there, like we said in the beginning of the chapter, at all times, at every moment. Because it's who we are. It's not dependent. In other words, our passion is not situational. Just like it's not emotional or intelligible, it's not situational either. It's soulful. That soul's always there. It's just a question of how we're going to gain awareness. And that's the Shema. The Shema will help us. That's our tool. Use it well. Yeah, it sounds excellent. Yeah, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Yeah. What's what's that snack at the <laughs> my screen? Oh, it's. Uh, oh, I had one for you. Flat. 